What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Alex Wilcox. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of JSX, formerly known as JetSuite X, an independent air carrier based in the United States that describes itself as a hop-on jet service offering short-haul flights between and within Arizona, California, Florida, Nevada, Texas, and Utah. Before JSX, Alex founded JetSuite, not to be confused with JetSuite X. He also worked at several different airlines and was a founding executive of JetBlue. Airways. We spoke with Alex all about his upbringing, the various jobs he had and the lessons he picked up along the way, his experience managing a rock and roll band early in his career, what he hopes to accomplish with JSX, the behind the scenes of launching an airline startup, his vision for the future of aviation, and more. Here we go. So I was born in 1970 uh, in London, England. And uh, I'm told I lived there for three years. Don't remember any of it. Moved to Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my mother was Swiss. My dad, uh, a New Yorker, American. <clears throat> he was a GI. He met in Heidelberg. And um, he was in Europe working for the United States lines after that when I was born. I was a big shipping company back in the day. And uh, my mother was a student. And um, anyway, they got married and uh, lucky for me. And then uh, moved to New York eventually. Uh, so I grew up from kind of, you know, preschool through third grade in Brooklyn, New York, kind of around the time Reggie Jackson was uh, winning the World Series, timely right now. And uh, <clears throat> I remember Reggie bars when they came out. And then when I was in third grade, uh, my dad changed jobs and we all moved to Vermont, northern Vermont. And so I went from PS 107, uh, a huge elementary school in uh Brooklyn to uh, a three-room schoolhouse in Vermont and so I had for third fourth and fifth grade I had one teacher Mrs. Potter and for sixth seventh and eighth grade I had another teacher Mr. Krebling <clears throat> and it was literally you know first and second grade I had already done that was they were in run, one room third fourth and fifth grade was in the second room and sixth seventh and eighth grade was in a third room so it was, it was literally like a little house in the prairie three-room schoolhouse right. um, and uh, we were one of the biggest classes that had gone through I think there were eight people um, eight people on the, uh, in my grade. And, uh, I think half of them are still up there and, and, um, and the others have kind of scattered all over the world, including me, obviously. Um, so it was a kind of, you know, beautiful youth and, and summers on a lake. And I had a boat when I was in fourth grade and, you know, went fishing and, and did those kinds of things. So very <clears throat> different from, from my time in Brooklyn. And then, uh, went to high school our choices for high school there were to ride a bus every day, you know, like an hour each way into the nearest town that had a high school, either Essex Junction or Burlington, Vermont, or you go away to school. So I went to boarding school, um, a place called Milton Academy in, in Milton, Mass. Uh, and, um, you know, going from a three from schoolhouse back to that was also quite a transition. Um, and uh, four years there, graduated, decided I had enough with school. Um, and I went on to... Uh, um, work at, in, in aviation. Um, I grew up, you know, when I was growing up, I, I traveled a lot too, uh, as a kid. And that's kind of what I think gave me a taste for both for travel and for airplanes and flying. Did um, you think so at that young yeah. of an age, did you think at that young of an age, you would eventually work in something related to aviation? Like, did you, from that young age, have that plan set? I totally did. I totally did. You know, I knew I wanted to be in aviation. I knew I did not want to be a full-time, you know, professional pilot. But I wanted to, you know, be involved. So every time I told somebody I wanted to be, you know, work for the airlines, they were like, oh, you want to be a pilot? And I said, no, no, I don't. I mean, I want to be a pilot. Yeah, because that's an incredibly cool thing to be. But um, I also want to, you know, help run the business. And no one really thinks about, um, you know, the jobs besides flying the plane. And uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, and I knew for what part know, of it, that's what I wanted to do. What part of it? I don't know. If, did you ever get your uh, pilot's license, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. I you sold did? it when okay. I was 16 years old. And, uh, oh, nice. <laughs> and I haven't done a whole lot with it. I've got a, I got a seaplane rating and I got a glider, <clears throat> um, got some glider instruction and, uh, I barely fly at all, you know, personally now, but, um, I love to pretend and once in a while, you know, if we're moving an airplane, I get to sit in, a, in the pilot seat for a few um, What yeah. did your parents think about, you know, Alex trying to fly planes? They were actually super supportive, you know, um, I could do like many of us, I could do no wrong in my mother's eyes. And, uh, so she was, she was very supportive and, 
and my dad was a little concerned whether or not I'd be able to make a career out of it. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a, it's an industry that with a really checkered past, you know, and not a, not a whole lot of successes and plenty of failures. Um, so I think he was a little concerned about it, but, but, you know, ultimately he supported it too. At the time, you know, you, you wanted to work in the industry, but you said you, it wasn't necessarily being a pilot. You just wanted to work in the industry. What about it fascinated you so much and, and kind of paint us a picture of what the industry looked like at the time. Were there a lot of players yeah, in the sure. space? Was it just, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, in the seventies and eighties, it was actually uh, a really exciting time to be in it because it was just getting deregulated, you know, under Jimmy Carter. A guy named Alfred Kahn came in and said, you know, because at the time the government was setting all the fares, they were setting the routes. It was a very kind of monopolistic business, only a few players. The government literally told you what kind of meals you could serve at what times a day. You know, it was highly, highly regulated. We're still regulated now from a safety standpoint, but less so, you know, commercially. And it's more or less an open market now. You can fly when and where you want with a few exceptions. So, um, you know, so it was it was a time of big transition, and I read about Alfred Kahn and deregulation, and saw all the opportunities. Tons of new airlines were starting, were, were being founded. Most of them failed. Um, and uh, <clears throat> but you know, my experience as a kid was flying on Swiss Air. You know, to go see my grandparents in in, in Switzerland, and and that was a still a nice experience. People still got dressed up to fly. I felt great about the flight itself and the experience and everything to go with it. Whether I was flying alone or with my parents, you know, I loved it. And then getting there too, and just the traveling aspect of it, you know, was, was highly appealing to me too. So there was really nothing about it that didn't appeal to me. I mean, it was like every every part of it, you know, from the travel to the business to the uh, actually, you know, flying airplanes. Uh, it was all very, very fascinating to me. So, um, but it was it was a very different industry at the time. Yeah, and and was it back then where you had sort of a vision of wanting to start your own airline one day, or did you not even? Did you not even think along those terms where you just, I just want to work in the industry? No, I definitely wanted my own. You know, I, I uh, <clears throat> my buddy, my best uh, friend in, in elementary school, a guy named Fred, um, his last name started with an M and mine was a, a you know, AW, obviously. And so we had this airline, you know, FMAW, we fought. Is it going to be FMAW or AWFM? Um, and uh, we drew pictures of what the planes would look like. And, you know, we, would, we, we had visions on, you know, how the service would be and, and uh, we had some really weird shapes looking airplanes too. <laughs> Probably not airworthy, any of them, <laughs> but we knew it could be better and we, we knew it could be, you know, super cool. And, and uh, no, I definitely had some aspirations even from an early age. Yeah. Um, did you uh, pursue a degree in college or did any, anything in the education space or you just, I know you said you had your pilot's license at 16. So mm -hmm. did you just go straight into the industry? Yeah, I sold it at 16. I think I actually got the license when I was 17. <clears throat> um, and then I went on, um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, the first thing I did after I got my, my license is I um, I did go back to college. I worked, you know, in Burlington, Vermont for this airline. Uh, two years I worked for them um, before college, and then I worked for them during college as well. And, I, and for the time I worked for them, which was probably three and a half years altogether. I had five different IDs from the airline because we kept getting bought and sold and changing airlines. So it's, it was Brockway Air, then it was Piedmont Commuter, then it was U.S. Airways Express, then it was Metro Flight, then it was it was um, uh, what was the last one? Um, Trans World Express, and then finally went out of business. And so it was it was lots of transformation. And you know, I saw during my time out, you know, out of school, I saw the value of actually having a uh, in education and, and getting a degree. Um, so I did enroll in the university of Vermont, which is the local you know college uh, next, you know, there in Burlington. And I didn't take any business classes really. I took uh, political science and English classes. I had a great poli sci teacher, a guy named Frank Bryant, who was all about government. He's a, he's a big uh, kind of libertarian, um, you know, died in the wool Vermonter. Vermont's a very interesting state politically because they have they have town meetings uh, every year. And so you get to see as a small town citizen, you get to actually go and vote, you know, on the school board budget, on the town budget. Do you buy a snowplow this year or not? Do you buy a new school truck, you know, school bus or not? And so it's a very, very, you know, visceral and, and firsthand experience in government. Turns out that's incredibly important in aviation because it's a highly regulated um, uh, business when you're trying to do things that no one's ever done before, you know, which is kind of what we're doing now. And you have to understand, you know, the local, localities and the federal government and the states and how and what the interaction is among all of them um and uh and you know we have very very strong 
federal protections in terms of doing what we do in aviation and innovating. But a lot of small communities think that they can regulate you when, in fact, there's a federal preemption on most most of what we do. So we spend a huge amount of time, you know, explaining to people why it is um, we operate in the way the way we do, and and in fact that, that you know they have no choice but to let us do it because it's it's actually required, still required in the U.S. Constitution. So. Um, and other laws, other, other federal laws. So turned out the poli-sci was very important in terms of getting done what we need to get done. And English was helpful because you had to write a lot of letters too. <laughs> and yeah. You know, was that intentional yeah. though? Like did, were you, at the time, were you like, I'm taking this because I know it's going to help or you were, you just, in hindsight, it really helped? I think it was more in hindsight, you know, it wasn't so deliberate. I mean, it, my, my, my dad, who was an English major too, um, he went on to get an, an MBA at Harvard, but but he started as an English major in undergrad. And he said, look, if you're not sure what you're going to do, and I wasn't at the time, I, I knew what industry I wanted to be in, but I wasn't sure what to do. He said, then just go get an English degree because, you know, communication skills are, are transferable in pretty much any industry. And yeah. um, and so it was good advice and I, I'm glad I took it. I'm, I'm curious, what was your plan in terms of, okay, so like, you know, when someone is like very, very young, I'm talking like maybe like seven, eight years old, and they have this like vision of, you know, what they want. I want to own an airline. You don't really know how much goes into that and how much capital it takes and all these things. But once you get a little bit older, like high school and maybe college years, you start realizing, oh, shoot, that's like going to be a very big undertaking. But what what gave you the conviction or like, did you have a plan of, you know, I know, I know how this is going to sort of pan out or were you just you know, not really certain at that time how you would go about things. Well, you're a lot more certain at the beginning of your entrepreneurial path than you are when you get down the road, right? Yeah. Um, you know, before you actually have to do anything or hire anybody or work with anyone else, it's, it's everything's very, very easy, right? It's just a piece of paper uh, and an idea. And ideas, turns out, it's true, it's cliche now, but but ideas are cheap and easy. Execution is everything. Um, but I, I did, you know, I have to credit my dad a lot. He He was a CFO you know, for the, the shipping company. And um, he spent a lot of time, you know, explaining to me how the public markets worked. And we actually had these fake accounts. My sister and I um, were given, you know, $1,000 in pretend money and allowed to, you know, invest it uh, in the public markets. And there was a a company that, I forget the name of the company, but they published an annual report and it was an annual report for a lemonade stand, right? And it was like, you know, Joe's lemonade stand. It was just a kid, he said, okay, well, we had to go get lemons at the store. And then we had to convince mom to help us, you know, build a table. And so all the capital and, and kind of, you know, pre-investment that went into it. So we understood the concepts and it had an income statement in it. You know, we sold six cups of lemonade and this was our income. And we, you know, bought this many lemons. So there was the, you know, there was the double column accounting and then there was a balance sheet. And so I, I became familiar with those terms probably earlier than, you know, most people uh, do. And so I understood there would be some capital involved. And I was really a student in the industry. You know, even in grade school, I read the trade magazine. It was called Aviation Week and Space Technology. It still exists today. Uh, it was published by McGraw-Hill at the time. And I would just, I think would come every single week. I would just read it cover to cover. I couldn't wait for it to come in. Um, and so, you know, I had some concepts about how the business worked. Um, and then I just, you know, I got, I got, I just got working in it. You know, I worked as a dispatcher. I worked as a fueler. I worked as a baggage handler. You know, I literally learned it, learned it from the ground up, um, which again is, is a cliche, but it happens to be true in my in my case. You know, I spent high school summers, you know, learning how to fly a plane. I spent high school summers loading bags, and um, the only job I've had outside of the industry I got fired in actually it was the summer I was taking flying lessons and I was waiting tables and and I, I would leave you know before the kitchen was clean because I had to go take my flying lesson and that didn't please my boss very much and he was friends with my parents. He, he we in a resort uh, close to our house. And um, <laughs> and I drove up one day and he said, Alex, you don't work here anymore. I said, what are you talking about, Michael? He goes, you're too unreliable. You always, I said, I get, I get here on time every day. He goes, yeah, but you leave early. Um, so so he fired me on the spot. And that was a, quite a lesson to me. It was the only time I've been fired. And it's the only time I've taken a job out of the industry. So I'll probably never do that again. Um, <laughs> other than managing a rock and roll band for a couple of years. But that's think- another story. Yes, I want to talk about that. Before we do, uh, um, I think I read that you worked at Southwest, and I, I think that was in college, right? Um, how was that experience? I mean, you know, you talk about the years with when regulation was changing and sort of like, you know, Herb Geller being like such a sort of pioneer in that. And, you know, did you ever get a chance to meet him? Like, what was that experience like? I did. I did. Yeah. So it was, a, it was my junior to senior summer. And I came down here to Dallas um, and I interned at Southwest and they paid me in tickets and fried okra and barbecue. Um, and, uh, 
it was awesome because it, this is kind of just as email was starting, but it wasn't really a thing yet. And so um, I worked in the PR department and um, every day our job was to basically take the newspapers from all over the nation, which would you know be flowing into Southwest, go through every single page of every single paper, find any story about aviation, clip it out, put it into a, um, we would produce a, a newsletter every single day for internal use in the headquarters um, with every single aviation story of the day. So the first thing you would do is you read everything that happened in the industry yesterday. So you got smarter about it. Then you'd produce this little booklet, which is, you know, anywhere between 12 and 60 pages, depending on the, you know, how much, how many stories there were that day. And then you would get to distribute the book. So you'd go photocopy the thing, you know, probably 30 or 40 copies, and then you distribute it to the distribution list. And you actually got to meet every single officer in the company. You know, you had a chance to meet them almost every single day. Right. So, you know, a lot of them were, they traveled a lot, but because you showed up on the doorstep every single day and you had something they wanted to see, you know, you got to actually know these people. So, you know, I delivered the email to Gary Kelly, who's the CEO now, who's the CFO at the time. I delivered the thing to Herb. I delivered the thing um, to, uh, yeah, to literally dozens of officers every single day. So it was like the best job, the best internship you could dream of because the potential for exposure was there um, every single day. And, and it was, it was, it was useful to everybody. It was useful to you. Um, so, uh, that turned out to be very gratuitous and, and definitely gave me a, a vibe into how the culture worked there. And they're famous for the culture. And, you know, Herb is, is, um, can't be, you know, you can't replicate Herb Kelleher, but he, uh, he's iconic. And I did get to know him uh, a little bit and I got to drive him around a few times. And, uh, the thing about being an intern is, you know, someone's got to drive the car at the press event. And so they just point to the intern and off you go. And also you're alone in the car with Herb Keller and you get to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was amazing. Alex, there's something I want to just kind of push you on, uh, as you were talking about all the kind of different, uh, roles that you've had throughout your career, uh, in the aviation, you know, airline industry. And, uh, someone it reminds me of like, in terms of story is the founder of Montage who Pat and I had on our uh, podcast, uh, at least a year ago now, his name's Alan Forsman. And before he began Montage, he basically worked every job in the hotel starting from, you know, being a bellhop, doorman, et cetera. And your story is similar, but in a different industry. The question I guess I have is there's a lot of people out there that either are listening now or have listened to us or they're working their butts off not listening to us that are doing what you did, are doing what Alan Forsman did perhaps. And they have played different roles throughout their career, hoping that one day they get their opportunity to be, you know, the head honcho, the also CEO. Bob, Bob, Bob Iger. Bob Iger, right? Yeah. We yeah, haven't had him on the show yet, so yeah. I that's why I didn't bring him up. Yeah. But, you know, maybe one day. But w- there's obviously something else that allowed folks like you, Alan Forsman, Bob Iger, and I'm sure several others that don't come to mind right now, to get to where you were, right? To eventually be the leader, the founder, the CEO, the executive. What do you think that is? What do you attribute that to? You know, I think um, this, again, is going to sound cl- cliche. This maybe is, this is the cliche episode. I'll try not to do that anymore. But, but you know, the harder you work, the, the luckier you get, right? And you just put yourself in positions where when something, when the window of opportunity opens up, you take it, you know, and, and you, you go the extra step. You don't just drop off the newsletter. You go and try to have a conversation with the person. You try to figure out how can you add value to that person? How can you have an impact here? How can you have a point of view? Hopefully you have a point of view about how things can be done better. And then you find the right opportunity to express that point of view to the right person at the right time. And that's all those things have to line up. But if you look for that, you know, if you have a point of view on how things ought to be, and it's different from how things are today, and then you know who you can influence or, you know, try to talk to because they're in a position, in a position to help you change the thing you want to change. And then you can find an opportunity to line up your schedule with theirs. And then you can find something, you know, an opening or some way to um, convince them you're just not somebody that wants something, but you're actually somebody that wants to give them something, not take something from them. You know, then, then you'll, 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 the opportunities are there for all of us every single day. I mean, um, it's amazing really how small this world is, particularly in, in, in the business I'm in. Everybody kind of knows everybody else eventually, but it's not like that when you're starting out for sure. Um, you know, when I, after I managed the band, which I know we'll talk about, um, band split up and I got off the bus and we were in Miami, Florida. And I just went and got a job, at Miami international airport, checking people in, uh, for Virgin Atlantic. Um, cause I like, you know, Richard Branson, it was the airline I wanted to work for. And eventually 
senior executives of the company would come flying to Miami, you know, and you'd find an opportunity to meet them at the gate and talk to them and say, Hey, why do we do this? Or why don't we do that? Or did you think about this? Or, um, and not in a way that hassles them, but you know, you, you create that and you're just a, you're a part-time, you know, a check-in agent making 12 bucks an hour at the time, uh, working for actually a third party, third party handling company. You don't even know working for Virgin Atlantic, but you know, you're going to intersect with these people if you do that and you meet enough of them and you make a name for yourself. And then all of a sudden Virgin moves their U.S. headquarters from New York City to Connecticut. So a whole bunch of jobs are going to open up because some people don't want to commute or move. And then you've already got that connection with uh, the person running that office. And so you apply for the job and they already know you and you get the job, you know, so it's you got to lay the groundwork. You got to be patient. You got to have a point of view and something to say um, right. and, uh, and and just continue to put yourself in those positions. And you got to be I mean, I was eating rice and beans and, and uh, you know, washing my shirts in the sink. <laughs> Uh, yeah. at that point in my life. Um, cause I didn't want to, you know, there was no laundry in the, in the apartment and there was, I didn't want to spend the money to laundromat. Um, but you know, and then I met David Tate, the leader for North America, one of the founders of Virgin Atlantic. And sure enough, they moved offices and the jobs became available and I applied to be a secretary, you know, his assistant. And I didn't get that job, but I became the assistant for somebody else. So I got a job in headquarters and then, uh, you know, within two years I'm pitching ideas to Richard Branson about how we should fly from uh, Westchester County Airport to London nonstop in the Gulf Stream, you know, so it's, it's, uh, you just got to be in the right place at the right time with something valuable to say. Yeah. Mm. And I think you ended up meeting your future business partner while you were there, which we'll talk about. But before we do, you managed a band. You're this guy who's from the young age, wants to be in the aviation space. You're in that space. What happens? You leave and you're like full time managing a band. And like, what happened there? So I, I graduated from UVM, University of Vermont, and uh, I'm not quite sure what I want to do. And I had done that internship at Southwest, um, but you know, like a lot of college graduates, I'm trying to like really figure out what I want to do next. And it just so happened that you know, my best friend from high school um, had helped start a band um, called the Nail Drivers, and um, they were formed at CU Boulder, and they had graduated as well, graduated or dropped out, depending on the guy. <laughs> and uh, they bought a Winnebago, and they started commuting, and. Um, our lead guitarist um, and and singer Keith Rabin had uh, a girlfriend in Indiana. She went to IU, and so we drove to Indiana University. We played the fraternities there. Then we worked our way up to the nightclubs. Turns out the fraternities paid a lot better, by the way. Um, and then we went down on spring break to Charlie's, you know, in South Padre Island, and and it was like it was literally six or you know six five six or seven guys, depending on the on the month, living in Winnebago, touring the country playing frat houses, opening acts. You know, we op they opened, I, I'm not a musician, by the way. I, I, I tried to help manage the band, but <laughs> it was a tough group to manage. Um, and, um, but it was, you're kind of like on a perpetual spring break. This is before MTV road rules, right? This is before real world. Like we would have been on all of those shows if we'd, if we'd been just a couple of years later, but, but we were a little ahead of our time in that respect, but we were just a, a touring band uh, trying to, you know, uh, trying to make a living. And, and it, we kind of did, you know, we got fed and we got paid and we got gas in the Bago. We got to see the entire country. I can't tell you how many hours we spent driving across Kansas, um, between, you know, Boulder and, 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 uh, Bloomington. Um, but eventually we took the, took the act to many, many other places. And these are guys that were just really my best friends in the world. And, and, uh, and so it was kind of an idyllic way to, to spend the time. And then, you know, I won't bore with the details, but the band finally gets to Miami and, and breaks up. Um, uh, one key member leaves the band and, and, uh, and that was going to be, you know, that was going to be it. When, and by the way, we we're also on the cusp of success there. We, we, uh, cut an album with, uh, Peter Solly, who is a producer of what I like about you. I think it was the biggest yeah. single of its time in history. And, and so we were like on the road there, but you know, as often happens in these things that it didn't work out, uh, in the long run in, in a, in a big, big way for the band. It's an experience I think none of us would ever trade. Um, and they still get together, you know, uh, every year or so and play. Um, but now it's more of a reunion kind of show. And, uh, yeah. but it was, it was, it was a fantastic opportunity and a, and a great, great time in my life. And, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So it was just the right thing to do at the time. And, and, you know, the airplanes could wait. Yeah. And, and it's crazy because I feel like a lot of people, either musicians or just people who want to get into the music industry, 
it's really hard to get to a point where you see some success and you guys, you did that. Right. And so like, why did you decide not to pursue music, you know, talent management? And why did you decide you wanted to actually go back and was it just like this burning thing inside of you? You're like, I need to work in the aviation space. You know? Yeah, it was, it was about aviation. It was also, you know, the, the music business, I, I love music as a, you know, as a, as a listener, um, I appreciate music deeply. I, I don't have any talent, any musical talent, you know, whatsoever. I can't sing, <laughs> can't hold a tune. Um, but, uh, but I'm a great lover of music, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough business. If you, you know, um, you're up late at night, you're, there's all kinds of temptations around you all the time. Uh, it's a lifestyle business for sure. And it, it just ultimately wasn't the kind of lifestyle that I wanted to pursue uh, long term. And so that was half of it. And the other half was, I did have this burning desire to get back into aviation, which is my true, you know, my true passion. Were you ever in a state of anxiety about where your career and life was going? What time is it? <laughs> yeah. Like this morning. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, you're not human, especially in these days, you know, if you're not worried about your, where your career and life are going. Um, so, but you know, anxiety is, anxiety is maybe a higher bar than, than I'm, than I've been at for a while, but, but, uh, but for sure, you know, I mean, luckily I didn't have any dependents and no one was counting on me to, to feed them right. other than myself. And, and, um, you know, during that time with the band and after shortly thereafter, I ran up a fair amount of credit card debt and, uh, you know, I wasn't in a very good financial position. And, and, uh, like I told you, I was washing my shirts in the sink. Um, so I always had a confidence that it would, it was going to work out, but I, but I, there was definitely, there's definitely been several moments where I didn't know how, how it was going, how it was going to do that. So. Um, how'd you get out of that? How did you, how did you overcome? Man. I mean, you clearly overcame it. So what, was it just, you took things day by day and you just let it pass or. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just persistence. You know, you, it's a matter of focus. You want to focus on what your challenges are. Or do you want to focus on, you know, what the solutions are? And, and, you know, I think it was, it was definitely a conscious choice. You know, I, I, I deeply believe, and I tell my kids this, you know, that happiness is a choice and, and no matter what life deals you, and it's easy for me to say now because I'm in a, I'm in a great spot, but you know, it wasn't always that way. Um, happiness is a choice. And, and I had it, you know, I was blessed with a really solid background, really good family, really good support. I, I knew I was never going to be, you know, destitute. Um, uh, but, but, uh, I just had confidence that it was going to work out and I still do. And I think if you, you know, it's the Henry Ford quote, I think it was Henry Ford who said, if you believe you can, or you believe you can't, you're right. Yeah. Um, and I just always believe I could, you know, and sometimes it get, gets smashed in my face. You know, I took a company through bankruptcy last year. It was a huge, um, disappointment and embarrassment. And I let a lot of people down that, it invested with me and, and did other things and, and, um, it was a humiliating experience, but on the other hand, you know, we've got this other business that's really, really succeeding and, and, uh, uh, and that's been tremendously gratifying. So, you know, I've definitely, uh, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen both ends of it. Yeah. And yeah. we'll talk about obviously what happened in the last uh, year and a half. So going back, I guess, to you had applied for this job and that was in Connecticut, you had said, right? Yep as a secretary and, you know, talk to us a little bit about kind of what happened during those days. And obviously, yeah, so I wanted to be, out. I want to be David Tate's assistant and he was uh, the top guy in the U S and, you know, I, he didn't hire me. He hired somebody else. Um, but uh, a guy named Mackenzie Grant, who was basically the number two there, um, hired me. I hope it's okay to use all these guys' names. I, I don't think they'd mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, he hired me and, and uh, put me in, in, in this position where I had a lot of, you know, uh, latitude. And then one of my roles quickly became, you know, at the time the Virgin brand was really, really popular. It's still very popular now, of course, but, um, it was, it was really breaking out in, in North America at the time. And, and Richard was doing soda, you know, there's Virgin Cola was, uh, it happened during that moment. And, uh, and, you know, that out of the thousands of business like that guy launched, that, that was a time where he was doing a, a great deal of them. Um, and so I got to see a ton of business plans and, and what would work and what didn't work. And so a lot of these plans would get sent to our U.S. headquarters. And in fact, one of those plans. Um, and so one of my jobs was to basically summarize the plan and, you know, hand it off to either Mackenzie or David if it was any good. And if not, you know, toss it or, or uh, you know, or file it. And um, <laughs> turned out one of those plans turned out to be this company called New Air. Um, some guy in Salt Lake City um, 
had an idea for starting an airline. He'd started a couple before. He started Morris Air. He sold it to Southwest Airlines. And uh, that's what ultimately turned in, into JetBlue. And so, you know, that plan came across my desk because that was just, you know, one of the stack that came in that day of people pitching plans to Richard Branson. And so, you know, I summarized it and I pitched it to David. He said, okay, get this guy in. Um, what about it David, stood out to you? Like, what about the plan? Like, you had seen all these, you had worked at these different airlines, you had seen all this yeah. stuff behind the scenes. What was, what was different about it that you, like, really piqued your interest? Well, it had real scale and it was relevant to our brand, right? Like, some of the, some of the uh, business plans we saw was, like, for Virgin Nails, you know, like a nail salon chain, right, with the Virgin brand. And so that, that was, like, not super interesting to me. It probably would have made a lot of money, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't super interesting to me. But, and there were, there's no shortage of people in, in our industry that start businesses with really, you know, I think, bad ideas. And by bad, I mean not solving a customer problem, you know, not consumer focused, just trying to do the same thing again because they want to run an airline, uh, not because it's actually going to do anything good for the customer. I think that's where they fo- where they fail. But David had a very clear thesis. He said, there is, bi- there is no low fare carrier in New York City, and there should be. And there were, in the time, one stat I still remember, there were more people flying between Boise and Spokane than there were between okay. Buffalo, New York and New York City, right? And the population is like 10x in Buffalo, what it is in Spokane. And the population is, you know, a million, a thousand x in New York City, uh, what, it, what it was in Boise. And yet there were more people flying because they had low fare service, right? They had Southwest Airlines, they had Morris Air. But, you know, U.S. Airways was the only air carrier flying between Buffalo and JFK. And the, scare, the fares were sky high. And there was no low fare effect in New York City. And everybody said it couldn't be done. And I happen to know, working for Virgin, that there was all kinds of opportunities at JFK. Um, that airport was very, very busy in the evenings for a couple hours during the European push, but the rest of the day, there was nothing going on. And uh, David flew out. And within a week of meeting the guy, we're in my 1984, you know, um, Saab 740, driving back and forth between LaGuardia and JFK. We drove it 16 times in one day, just timing it and timing it, because everybody's told him that no one would ever drive out to JFK for a domestic flight. And we realized like on average, it's like 17 or 18 minutes farther than LaGuardia, you know? So it's like psychically it's, it's like a different Island, but in reality it's, you know, less than a half hour further away. Um, and so, um, you know, because of that, because I was willing to take a job as a secretary, I had the opportunity to meet David Nealman and, you know, within two years of taking that job, I was literally driving him. One of the, who's now one of the greatest airline entrepreneurs on the planet, you know, uh, I just saw him last Friday in New York, actually, at a big industry event, and uh, we reminisced, and, and uh, we're still really good friends. Um, we compete a little bit here and there now, <laughs> but but we're yeah. still really good friends. Yeah, so, yeah, David was the one that just recently launched uh, Breeze Airways, right, in, I don't remember That's where right. it was, but I think in the southeast or somewhere in, the, in that area. Um, yep. What was your biggest lesson learned during that time, uh, during that stage of your career that you think you've taken away with you and applied, you know, throughout now your entrepreneurial ventures. The biggest lesson from that period of time from the yep. JetBlue start. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, David, I, I sort of knew it instinctually, but David really articulated it for me. And it's what I said before it's, is focus on what the customer wants. You know, if, if you're, if you can please your customer, everything else can be figured out, right? Cause your customers will give you money to do things that they value. Right. And everything else, whether it's regulatory, whether it's operational, whether it's personnel related, whether it's hot recruiting, anything else can be worked out. It's all, I don't want to say their details because they're, they're core to the business. But if, you, if you've got customers willing to give you money because you've, given, you've you know, built a better mousetrap, then that's really the only thing that matters. And everything else can be figured out. If you don't have something customers will value, it doesn't matter how good your training is, how good your culture is, how good your product is, how good... You know, your product's no good if a customer doesn't, you know, doesn't, isn't going to pay you for it. Um, so I think that's what working with David Newman crystallized that in my mind. If you've got, if you've got customers, if you've got a differentiated product that customers will pay you more for, then you are definitely um, way ahead of, of everybody else because you've got the only thing that really matters in business. So what year was that around? But just, just for context. It was back in the 1900s, Bosh. It yeah. was uh, 1998. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think I met David in 97, and uh, Jeff, their new air was incorporated in 98 and started flying in, in 2000. Um, yeah. 
did you have the idea for Jet Suite at the time or not yet? Um, I had the idea for a boutique air carrier that was going to service smaller markets or, or big markets from smaller airports in a way. You know, the, what happened, deregulation was great in terms of getting more people on airplanes, but deregulation in combination with, you know, the tragic events of 9-11 and everything that's happened since then right. um, were really bad for short-haul aviation in particular. So, you know, I had, I had a notion for a, an airline that offered better service, right? And that was kind of a very abstract uh, notion because the, the airline industry that I fell in love with in the 1970s and 80s that I described to you earlier, you know, getting on Swiss Air and everybody's happy to be there and well-dressed and the food's good and the, and the flights are always on time and, um, and you just feel, you know, happy and safe and you're happier when you get off the airplane than when you get on the airplane. We managed to destroy all of that, right? Like now it's just, now it's something you endure, not something you look forward to, right? Now it's, and, and, and as someone who loves the industry and loves aviation and loves flying and loves traveling, that to me is very, very sad, you know, practically tragic uh, because it's one of my true joys in life is going out and seeing new places and enjoying the, the ride as well, you know? Um, so I think, you know, I think that the, the, the kernel of the idea was there, you know, that I wanted to have a place that customers really loved, but you know, I guess the industry made it a lot easier uh, to, to to do that because yeah. they, you know, and really destroyed I'm themselves. Kinda, and look, I'm curious as to why you think that is because I feel like a lot of these airlines, like Southwest and JetBlue, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that they've like lost mm-hmm. their touch, but like I feel like they all start off that way to keep the customer. Let's make, let's make it better, and then perhaps at some scale, it's like hard. Is it is it just like at scale, it's difficult to do? How do you maintain that as you grow as an airline? Well, I would say, you know, JetBlue is still good at, at doing it and d- yeah. still differentiating themselves. And, and it's not just because they own 10% of my company. Uh, <laughs> they actually are. Um, yeah. And But but I do think there's a scale issue. You know, I mean, it's just hard to keep a, a warrior entrepreneurial spirit, you know, when you're, when you're 20,000 employees and, and operating 500 plus airplanes, you know, across the country every day. Um, and so, yeah, I think part of it is just pure scale. Uh, and lack of focus. And, you know, they also have the innovator's dilemma, right? I mean, Southwest had a niche, short haul, high frequency. We're really good at this. We know how to do it better than anybody else. We do it better than anybody else. But then all of a sudden, hey, you know, longer haul, we can amortize the, hey, our our, works, our workforce has now got 20 years of seniority and they want more money. And if we fly a longer haul, we can charge more for the tickets and we can amortize the cost of the airplane over more miles. And so every day they look a little bit more like a network carrier, you know, now they start connecting people over hubs and and so, you know, their, their differentiation has, has eroded. And it's, it's, it's a classic, uh, you know, Clayton Christensen wrote a, a book that every entrepreneur should read called The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, and it's a classic example of that because you, you innovate and then you start to grow. And then you hit a sort of a natural ceiling, I guess, in terms of that growth. And now you have to start losing your differentiation if you want to grow to be, you know, to continue to grow. And then you start looking more like your competitors. And now you're your USP your unique service proposition is gone. Um, and, and so I think you have to be very vigilant that you, you just do one thing and you stick to it. Um, and you know, I think they also lose customer focus again. You know, they, they start worrying more about their peers and what their market share is and what their average fare is compared to everybody else. Then they, then, Hey, you know, was Patrick happy on last night's flight? You know, like I get bummed out if a customer's not happy on one of my flights. Right. I think most of the big airlines, they don't give a crap. You know, they want to know what's our market share, what's our yield, how much do we charge versus what the competition charges in that market, right? Customer is almost an afterthought for some of these guys. Um, that's not true across yeah. the board, but but it's true certainly in some of these in- industries. And we all know that as customers. So I think, yep. <clears throat> you know, Jeff Bezos says this way better than I ever could. You know, Jeff Bezos, he, he, I don't know if it's true or not, but he says it a lot. He never <laughs> thinks about comp- competitors, right? Um we just focus on what our customers want. We want to add value to our customers. If you worry about your customers, your competitive issues will take care of themselves, right? So again, yeah. he just he just a, eats a, he just eats all the competitors. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there might be there might be a scale issue there too. Right? <laughs> Not a joke. Yeah, uh, Alex, yeah. I have a question that I was thinking about actually uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it maybe it, it's sort of a grim question, but I'm a I'm a big overthinker and I just kind of get lost in my thoughts at times because um, I just have a lot of thoughts. And we were flying, I don't remember where we were flying, it was a Southwest flight. And I was thinking to myself on the flight, you know, if I were, and there's where that anxiety kicks in, right? If I were the founder or CEO of an airline company, I would be shitting bricks on a daily basis 
of every time I see a fight going up and down. Because, like, if something happens, I'm the guy that's going to get blamed, right? It doesn't even matter. I'm not on that airplane, nowhere near that airplane. Didn't hire that person. I'm the guy at the top. I'm going to be blamed. And I can't even imagine what that feels like, right? Like, And even though I, I imagined it on that flight and I really gave myself this whole scenario, now that I'm having this conversation with you, I don't want to necessarily bring this bad thoughts into it, but, I mean, does that cross your mind? Does that cross the mind of other uh, leaders in the aviation industry? Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, yes, it, it has to. And if it doesn't, then that means you're going to get start, you're going to start getting complacent and mm-hmm. the likelihood of something bad happening. An unwanted outcome, as we say, you know, euphemistically, right. um, will occur. If you're not worried about it, then it's more likely to happen. Right. But look, first of all, the good news is as an industry, we're incredibly safe and, you know, JSX has been built to what we consider to be commercial airline standards, you know, part 121 standards. So we do a lot of things that other people in our category, you know, uh, charter category don't do. You know, we have the same exact ASAP programs and FOCA flight operations quality assurance programs um, that the big guys have. And so we look for all intents and purposes like a major commercial carrier, the way we, we operate. And we go above and beyond in terms of safety and security and those things. Um, but, you know, we drill every quarter um, on what happens if, you know, the worst were to happen. And we had a big accident and um, what do we do about that? And so, and how do we communicate and how do we make sure that we take care of people as best as we can? Um, you know, both our own crew members and, and on every single pilot call, we have a pilot call every month. And the first thing I do and the last thing I do on those calls is remind people that, Hey guys, we're in the business of safety. There's no single flight that's going to make or break this company. If, if anything's wrong with the airplane, don't fly it. If you're feeling tired, don't fly it. Um, if you don't know what's wrong, but your spidey sense is tingling, don't fly it, you know, and we also encourage people to go around if there's a, you know, most accidents happen on takeoff and landing. So we spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, how to make sure that, um, you're, you're most aware there, you know, these pilots are trained every six months. They come into a simulator. They practice all the worst case scenarios. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, we have an extremely good safety record as an industry because there is all this discipline around it. But you can't become you cannot become complacent because that does increase the likelihood that you'll have a bad outcome. Right. So, so we don't just think about it once in a while. We actually think about it all the time, and that's one of the reasons I think we don't have those issues um, because it does, especially when you're a young air carrier. You know, if you have a, a bad outcome, you know, it could be the end of your company. It's not just the, you know, it's the end of your livelihood as well, and the livelihood of everyone that works with you. And that's you know, the total total tragedy now. In reality, you know, if I were running a taxi company with 20 cars, I'd probably kill somebody every couple of years. You know, when you just when you look at the actual you know, numbers on, on it. And so if you're running a company like Uber or, or uh, um, you know, any ground transportation company, bus company, you're much, much more likely to hurt somebody badly than you are if you're running a, a, an airline company. But, but when we do it, it's a lot more dramatic and it gets a lot more headlines. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it's and I think that think was, about, but I think in a healthy way. And that was, I think, really just elevated by 9-11 and the memories of that. I mean, before that, I mean, again, like, I think, Pat, you and I were, shit, at this point, we were eight years old, nine years old when that happened. Yeah. But for those that were adults and are now in their 40s, 50s, 60s, that changed the entire, I mean, they knew a life on an airline before 9-11 and now post 9-11. And it's just, it completely obviously changed the landscape of that. So, I mean, after that happened, like, and, you know, that was seven or eight years before you started, you know, Jet Suite. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts? I mean, were you thinking like, oh, man, like this is the end of my career in aviation. Like, I don't think I want to be in this business anymore. Or did that just kind of push you even further to say, I want to build something, you know, even greater, even more, you know, uh, safe, even more influential? Yeah, definitely the latter, you know, we're like, we're not going to let these guys win and we're not going to like, you know, turn tail and, and, and cower and just run into a, a bunker for the rest of our lives. You know, I mean, this country is about freedom. It's about mobility. It's about getting out there. It's about communicating with people. It's about interacting and, and, and aviation makes a whole lot of that possible, a lot more possible than it would be otherwise. And so it definitely redoubled. I was at JetBlue at the time. You know, everyone has their story from 9-11. Uh, I was in a high rise in, in L.A. You know, it was, it was early in the morning there, obviously. And uh, every one of us at JetBlue were assigned an airplane. Mine was in Kansas City, actually. Um, it was going. It was flying from New York to Ontario, California. And we had to help organize rental cars for everybody so they could, you know, either drive back to New York or drive to California because everything was grounded for a few days. 
and um, the memories are visceral. And we were we were a startup airline, and we were a New York City based airline. You know, um, thank God we weren't directly impacted by it. But um, but you know, from our headquarters, you could actually see. I wasn't there in New York, but you could see you know the Twin Towers, and um, you know until they fell, obviously. And the um, the impact on us was was surreal. And, and you know, David Nealman and um, he, he he led us incredibly well through that crisis. Everybody was freaked out. No one knew if we were going to have a job tomorrow. No one knew. But that was the least of our concerns, right? Because that wasn't just the industry. That was like the, the country, right? We were all scared. Right. Um, but David came out and he said, you know, we're going to make bulletproof doors. We're going to make sure this never happens again. We're going to put special locks on the doors. We're going to put TV cameras in the cockpits with video surveillance in the cabin. If anything bad happens, those pilots can fly the airplanes in ways that will pin you to the ground, you know, until we get to the ground. And, and uh, extremely proactive, extremely positive, extremely innovative, you know, in a way that was totally necessary and, and totally... Um, effective at the time and uh and you know what we we, we addressed the issue head on and we we uh i think we overcame it you know and, and with a lot of help from the government with a lot of help from from industry from manufacturers from other people um intelligence services uh, we hired the former head of um the fbi for new york area um at JetBlue at the time to come in and help us assess, assess threats and yeah it's a very visible industry um, and you know, that was obviously one of the most dramatic days of our lives. Um, but no, I would say it definitely redoubled our commitment to making sure that this industry would be in a position to, to not just survive it, but to, you know, to thrive. Yeah. Talking about the early days of JetSuite a little bit, um, you know, folks listening to the show obviously are interested in entrepreneurship or starting something if they have an idea or are interested or passionate about something. And businesses are getting started all the time. You obviously don't see a lot of airlines getting started because it is like such a big thing to take on. And so I'm curious, you know, from the outside, it, it looks, and I'm sure it is, but I'm curious, like going into it, you obviously had all this knowledge. Um, I don't know if you had to like raise money and like go about it, you know, in terms of like buying um, planes or I don't know, what, how does that process work? Like what, talk to us about the early days of starting a new airline. Sure. I mean, typically what you do is you, you go out and you raise a little bit of money, usually not enough. And you buy some old airplanes, um, usually not reliable enough. And you put out some marketing dollars, usually not enough. Um, and you sell some tickets, usually not enough. <laughs> and you fly a couple of flights and um, you make a little bit of revenue and, and uh, it costs you more and you go out of business, right? That's how most airlines come and go. Um, JetBlue was the first airline started with all new airplanes. You know, David was inspiring that way too. He raised $120 million, which is more than ever been raised for a startup before at the time. This is again back in the 1900s. Um, yeah. and that was a lot of money. Um, now that's like a seed round for like a tech startup. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, but, but it was, it was real money at the time. Um, and he, he, he actually bought airplanes brand new from Airbus and, and, you know, we, we went to pick up the first airplane and said, okay, just send us a copy of your AOC, your, your aircraft operator certificate. So we don't have one yet because we need an airplane to do our proving runs to prove we can fly the airline. You know, the FAA hasn't given us the license yet. And I said, well, we can't sell you the airplane unless you have an AOC. We've never done that before. So like literally the, the first or second biggest aircraft manufacturer in the world had never sold an airplane to a startup before, right? They'd only sold to in, in incumbents. And so, you know, it tells you a lot about, about the industry. So, you know, we obviously figured that out. We leased the airplane initially and then, you know, got the licenses and all that. But um, so David did it the right way. You know, he raised a ton of capital. John Owen, who was our CFO at JetBlue and he was a treasurer at Southwest Airlines, he said, I'll never forget it. You know, there's no such thing as too much cash in this business, right? And a lot of these businesses fail, like a lot of the businesses just for lack of capital. They don't raise enough, so we solve that problem. And we had differentiated product and we had live TV. Um, but but yeah, it's very much like any other startup. You have to go out and raise a pile of money um, and you've got to get the assets to to fly it. But then you have to go through all these regulatory hurdles of indefinite length. You know, it could take six months to do your proving stuff or it could take a year and a half, you know, depending on your team, depending on the FAA's mood, depending on um, you know, who's in charge of the government, depending on what you're trying to do in terms of getting slots at JFK or flying to, you know, uh, Mina, Arizona, where you can go whenever you want. So, but, but it, it, it's the same basic ingredients as any, as any other business. Um, I'll just story, quickly ask yeah. a question. I thought, I don't remember if it was the, I was listening to a story either of Herb Kelleher or David Nealman or one of those guys. And they were saying that a lot of airline companies lease their, airplanes as well for like i don't know many years like decades was that yeah. not something that jet blue at the time i guess had considered 
Yeah, they do. I mean, the leasing is just, is, a, is another form of financing, you know. So most yeah. major airlines, they'll own about half their fleet and take the tax write-offs and they'll lease about half the fleet and give those write-offs Got to it. people that, you know, the business doesn't make that much money, so we don't need that much depreciation. <laughs> so right. we sell the depreciation yeah. to people that need it. So insurance companies tend to own the airplanes and, you know, use less orders to lease them to, uh, to airlines. And so, yeah, I'd say roughly half the world's fleet is leased versus owned um, yeah. in, a, in a very rough cut. Um, and the lessors make their money as well, but you know, so that, so most of these businesses start like any other business, an idea, some money, you know, and, and you go to market and see if it works. Uh, I backed into it a little bit differently at jet suite, you know, which was a private jet company. So I'd been in India for two years. I got recruited away from JetBlue. Um, I think in 2000 must've been, uh, uh, 2005 or six. And I went to India to help start an airline there called Kingfisher. Spent two years there. That's uh, you can watch <laughs> Bad Boy Billionaires on Netflix if you want to see more about that. That was quite an interesting story. Um, I came back from India, and then um, I actually met a banker who had bought. And this is 07, 08, This is oh eight now. Um, oh eight oh nine during the crash. Um, this this banker had bought a bunch of airplanes from Embraer, Phenom one hundreds, and he was going to flip them or he was going to put them in operation. But the world was ending. You know, the financial crisis was on us. So he had nothing. He had to take a number of these airplanes, and so he said, "Write me a business plan. What would you do if you had to take, you know, ten Phenom 100s right now?" And so I wrote the plan. We called it Jet Suite, and that you know it 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 did very well for in its first few years. It was right for the time, um, but then it had some flaws in, in the model, and we we ultimately had to close it last year when COVID came. We didn't have enough cash in the business to to continue operating it, um, so we had to you know declare bankruptcy. Um, but you know, so, it had, it had Alex, a, yeah. do you want to explain real quick? You know, yeah. obviously, what the, what Jet Suite was doing and why. I mean, yeah. obviously, we know the why being COVID. But what was it that wasn't working? It was uh, the same thing that happens in a lot of businesses. We had more expenses than we had revenue. Uh, we sold these membership packages that that had no um, timeline, uh, no expire expiration on them. And so it turns out, if you sell something to somebody, you expect them to use it in the next six months, and they spread it over six years, you know, you can't cash flow the business for that long. You know, that's kind of the, the short answer. So it was just basically um, the model was the model was not an ideal money making model. And we, we managed to make it work for a period of time. But then when COVID came, you know, we, we couldn't sustain it uh, because demand literally went to zero overnight. You know, so when your demand goes yeah. from 10 million a month yeah. to zero overnight, it's, it's hard to sustain that. So but, you know, five years ago, we, we um, started a second business. Uh, called JSX or another business called JSX, and that's what we're flying today. We called it Jet Suite X at the time. Now it's just JSX, and that's totally differentiated business, right? So um, we're flying thirty seat airplanes from private terminals, you know, on uh, more or less a regular schedule, but under public charter rules. And um, we become incredibly popular. We fly, you know, up to twelve times a day, for example, between Burbank and Las Vegas. Las Vegas is definitely our biggest market. Uh, but we go to NorCal, SoCal, Burbank, Oakland, Concord, um, Reno. We fly to um, uh, Monterey as well, you know, from SoCal. Uh, we're out of Orange County. We go to San Diego, LAX. Uh, JSX.com if you want to see our room app, of course. I'll just give that a little plug. Um, yeah, and, we'll link uh, it to it in the description. <laughs> we're, we're like the highest rated air, you know, air carrier in North America. We got a net promoter score in the 90s. Uh, we operate, you know, um, highly, highly popular, highly um, convenient services. And the, the, the USP is you can grow up to the FBO or private terminal, get out of your car. Within 20 minutes, you're on the airplane and, and you're on your way. And so it's something that, you know, the, the domestic industry can't do anymore. But we figured yeah, out no, it's, it. it's, it's really great. And I guess this ties into like my next question is how do you see like the future of aviation and the airline industry looking like? Like, where do you think we're headed? Is it, I mean, obviously you guys are working on this, so you, you see that yeah. as a future, but in general, how do you, how do you think it looks like in the next 10, 15, 20 years? I think it's going to be super exciting. You know, in the next 20 years is a great time frame because we're going to, we've made pledges as an industry to go carbon uh, neutral or uh, net carbon neutral, you know, by 2050. And uh, we're going to beat that at JSX. We've got investments already in uh, several different platforms. Actually, they're not all going to make it to certification and production, but but we got we're placing bets all over the table. So whichever technology winds up working, we'll we'll be the first mover there. Um, we're looking at nine seat airplanes, some that are still in stealth mode. 
um, some that have been announced. 90 or 9? 9. 0-9, yeah, small. Right, But this is a thing that could take off with electric motors from like any street corner in Santa Monica and have you, or maybe, maybe you know, um, maybe more in a street corner, but, you know, any block in Santa Monica, <laughs> take off and have you at the Embarcadero, you know, in, in 55 minutes, right? So like, not yeah. just like LAX to Oakland, but like, you know, 6th Street to the Embarcadero, you know, just like that. And that's going to change this the world. What, this and, is and what like, I like to hear. Yeah, I like, to hear. yeah. like these EV tolls that you see out there, they don't have the range to do that. But the the platforms we're looking at do, and I wish I could say more about them, but they're still in stealth mode, and <laughs> they'll be yeah. coming out soon. We'll... And since we're talking about the future, um, what about like flying cars? Do you do you ever like think about that? Is that a, is that an actual? I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. basically. What oh, we're oh, that, oh, that is. Oh, you're talking yeah. about like, <laughs> but like anyone could anyone could own own one. I'm saying like. Well, no, this is gonna be more. This is going to be more of an Uber type app application. You know, it's going to be on yeah. demand, right? And you'll you'll pull out oh, the okay. app; it'll fly up. Initially, it'll, it'll need a pilot. People are going to want pilots in these things, and and uh, um, it'll fly you. But you know, much much more point to point. So instead of getting an Uber to take a vehicle to a flying vehicle to another vehicle to where you're going, got it? You'll just yeah, you'll you'll get the app, and you'll the vehicle will take you from where you're going to where you want to be. Yeah, incredible. Um, it's uh, it's going to be, it, it, and it's it, it will actually happen. A lot of the ones that are public now, I think, are less likely to happen because they have no range. There are lots of electric airplanes. They can taxi, they can take off, they can descend, they can land. Just that little piece in the middle, they don't have any energy for, right? The cruise portion of flight. So yeah. like you can get off the ground, you can get back on the ground, but you can't actually yeah. go anywhere. So that's the the technologies that we're looking at uh, solve for. Does that, that all fall under larger production airplanes too? Does that all fall under the same regulation as like the airline space? Like, is there air traffic control for that or is it totally different? Great question. Great question. These are among the problems the industry has to solve. You know, if we're going to have, you know, uh, order of magnitude more vehicles in the sky, we're going to need different technology to keep them separated. And the technology is there already. It's more of a regulatory question. You know, how do you get that through Congress and through the FAA in a way that's, uh, well, it's uh, interesting because on a ground level, we see you know <laughs> self-driving cars trying to make its way on the roads, and I think that one of the issues is that there are people that are in physically driving other cars, which creates dangerous scenarios. But since the sky is sort of like it's like you know hasn't been conquered yet from that <laughs> perspective, if they're autonomous, you know, flying much you know, easier cars, then it's like they're all in the same network. They're all just talking to each other. It's it's hopefully it's going to be a little safer, right? Plus, there's a lot less things to hit, right? Like no one's ever run over a kid, you know, at 30,000 feet, right? Or a cat or whatever. You know, there's no stop signs to hit. There's no trees. Maybe birds. Like, yeah, exactly. But th- but it's a much, much easier problem. But birds, we have that problem today anyway, right? So, you yeah, know, and, and right. when airplanes are built to withstand that. So so um, it's much, much easier actually to do either autonomous or partial autonomous in the sky because there's just f- fewer stuff to hit. The driving down the street's not the hard part for the autonomous cars. It's all the stuff that, you know, jumps in front of the car that's the problem. Um, and so there's, you know, three dimensional space. It's, it's a much, much easier problem to solve, actually. For those that haven't heard of, you know, JSX and, uh, you know, the, your model and what you do, what's the advantage of them? F- besides, obviously, the fact that you just park and walk into the airplane. Yeah. You know, if I'm flying from Burbank to Oakland or Burbank to Vegas, why would I choose JSX over Southwest, for example? So JSX stands for a joyful, simple experience. Okay, so we've taken all the clutter out of the experience, and so you basically. As you said, you know, jump out of your car, get on the airplane. But what does that mean? It means you don't have to, um, you know, divest yourself of all your clothes and bags to get checked for security. We do have security. We do it ourselves. Um, And then you don't have to uh, walk through a shopping mall to get to the airplane. And you don't (laughs) have to pay uh, for a cocktail if you want one when you get on board. You don't have to pay to check your bags. You don't have to, you don't get nickel and dimed every step of the way, you know, along the flight. And then the other end, when you land, you don't have to wait for 160 people to get their carry-on baggage out of the overhead bin in front of you and spend another 20 minutes on the airplane waiting for these guys to drop the bag on your head um, and then bang it down the aisle to get off. You know, all of our bags are checked. It's more like a private jet. The biggest difference, you know what the biggest difference is between a private jet and a commercial jet on the inside? Overhead Nothing. bins, right? There's no overhead bins on a private jet. And so we took the bins out of the airplanes that we fly. Um, and there's lots of legroom. And it's just a much more comfortable experience. And if you're in the last row of the airplane, which is row 10, um, you can be off that airplane in 90 seconds after we land because there's because the bags have been valeted for you. 
Um, and so it's just a, it's a much more civilized experience is flying the way it used to be, but even better. Uh, the airplanes are obviously, you know, jets and they're, they're, they're fast. And, and, uh, so you're not wasting any time at any point in your journey, either on the airplane or getting on or getting off the airplane. It's like Bill Gates with his billions of dollars in a private Gulfstream cannot get from Burbank to Vegas any faster, faster than you can on JSX. Like it's just, we figured out, um, how to get, how to deliver a private jet like experience in terms of the time you spend and the hassle that you have, but at more of a commercial price point, you'll pay more than you pay on commercial carrier, but not a thousand times more. Right. Are you guys expanding? I mean, how, how quickly are you expanding your presence across the U S fast as we can? We've got 23 airplanes today. We just announced service recently um, from Dallas to Miami and Miami up to Westchester County, um, white plains airport in New York. And uh, that's our first foray on the East Coast. We did a little stuff between Westchester County and Pinehurst uh, during COVID. But now we're up to uh, five days a week service to Miami. Starts November 18th. And um, we're going to be continuing to expand. And, you know, two thirds of the U.S. population still lives east of the Mississippi, right? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for reasons that, you know, only they can explain. But uh, it's a beautiful <laughs> place. And, and, and they live there. And, you know, I grew up in the East. I can say that, right? Um, so, um, so I think it's... Uh, it's a market that we have to be in just because it's where the people are, you know, you right. fish where the fish are. And I think that our service will be even more popular there than it is in California because the commercial alternatives there are even worse than they are in California. Um, and so we're, we're going to announce, you know, I think within a, a month or two, a very big deal to basically triple the size of our company very quickly. And, and uh, I can't wait for that to happen because, you know, we, we, we've been, <laughs> we're buying more airplanes every month, but um we can't get them out there fast enough to satisfy the demand that's out there. And, you know, COVID was obviously terrible, but what a good time to be running a crowd-free airline. Yeah. Uh, exactly <laughs> yeah. Tell me exactly about what it. Yeah. Want right now. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, kind of a little bit different topic, but I see a lot of books in the background there. Um, looks like you're a big reader. I don't know. Are you, are those your books and what kind of, what are you reading? Like what kind of things do you read these days? Uh, just for decoration. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm right now, I'm reading David McCullough, The American Spirit, you know, about what the yeah. com- country is founded on, because I think we've kind of lost our way a little bit. We've got to find a way to get along again. Um, I'm reading a book by Greg Brenneman, uh, who was uh, one of the guys that turned on Continental Airlines. It's called Right Away and All at Once. If you're an entrepreneur, definitely get this book, Right Away and All at Once, by Greg Brenneman. Um, it's, it's like the playbook on how to, on how to uh, assess a business and how to turn around a failing business as well. Um, I'm listening to an audio book when I'm driving to and from work and sitting on airplanes called Hail Mary uh, by the guy that wrote The Martian. I forget the name of the guy, but uh, remember The Martian, the movie? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating book about, you know, saving the planet. Um, and a great audio book. And then uh, I'm reading a book called The Business of Tomorrow. I happen to have them stacked up in front of me, which is <laughs> so yeah. funny you ask the question. The Business of Tomorrow, by, by it's about Harry Guggenheim, who's... You know, the Guggenheim Museum and artist, uh, art collector, and, and but he was actually very catalytic for the for the industry. Alex, do you think that you'll ever write a book about your experience in you know this industry? I mean, just kind of obviously speaking with us um, for the last you know little over an hour. Uh, there's obviously a lot of things that you've seen. I'm sure a lot that you haven't even told us about because of just you know you can't compress decades into an hour. Um, but there's so much experience there, and I think so much probably untold stories of the industry in general. I mean, Pat and I both were inspired by the podcast "How I Built This" uh, on NPR when we when we started this, and I think Herb Keller has been on there. Richard Branson's been on there. I'm not sure if David Nealman's been on there. I think he yeah, has. he was on it. He was on it. He, he sent was me on the link. it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. And so for me, those stories were always the most interesting because it almost felt like the aviation industry was the most private most behind the scenes closed doors you didn't really know much about it you know you're advertising but you're not advertising the people behind the business and so you know long-winded question obviously but the main point was do you ever think you'll write a book about your experiences in the industry yes um and every time i start to do it or think about it i got a screenplay me too you know i I lived in la for a while so i got a screenplay too yeah bond movie uh but but the answer is yes because i think um Every time I start sit down to do it, it we wind up doing something more exciting, and I, I, I get distracted from it. So, yeah. um, I got a few chapters in it. You know, there's the JetBlue chapter, there's the Southwest chapter, there's the the India Kingfisher chapter, um, and then there's the most exciting one, which is one I'm in right now. So, like, I just haven't had time to do it, but 
yeah, I think, you know, um, when I'm ready to stop running companies and start writing about them, I'm, I'm really excited to do that because I think yeah. probably, you're like writing it as you go. Yeah. I feel like you're like writing you know, it. Yeah. That's cool. I keep, I keep a bit of a journal, you know, so I'll have, I'll have some good notes to refer back to because it's amazing. Which gives, sure it happens to everybody. Which gives me the thought, why can't there be a book? And I'm sure there has been where like you release it and then you release as other chapters <laughs> as you go along. So like I can have the book, right? Like let's say there's 10 chapters and then Alex comes up with three new chapters because there's three new exciting things to write about. And as an owner of that book, I get those three new chapters. I think we just came up with a new idea. See, this is what happens. You just get the juices flowing. Alex, send me David Yelman's number. Let's have him invest. <laughs> Jeff Blue can be a 20% owner in our company. Yeah. And then, you know, we'll share. We'll share. We'll share the profits. No, but this has been really, really great. I really enjoyed this conversation. And, and uh, you know, we can't thank you enough for hanging out with us. At, I know it's later at night, um, but appreciate your time and sharing all your stories and wisdom. And can't wait to read the book once it's out. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more in there. And all the best to you and JSX. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I don't know about wisdom, but I really appreciated uh, uh, having an opportunity to talk a little bit and uh, and the opportunity to talk to all your listeners and, and meet you guys. Thank you, Thank Alex. You, sir. And best of luck. Thank right. you.